Hey listeners, it is Seeking Plum, and I am excited to share some things with you today. So earlier this month, Patrick from The Great Everything talked about uh, the making of meaning, and I echoed his segment, and then I talked about it afterward, which I'm going to echo both segments after this. It's a really interesting perspective on the disparity of communication, both written and verbal. Now, you'll hear me say in my portion of it that I have this realization about the verbal portion of it, but really, Patrick already said it, and somehow I missed it. Nonetheless, if you are listening on Anchor, feel free to skip through if you've already heard these, and if you're not listening on Anchor, I'm sorry you're missing out. After those segments, I'm going to share with you a segment by a really good friend of mine. She has a double PhD, she's a former professor, and she's going to talk about the brain and and how it plays a role in some of this. I'll tell you more a little bit later. In an odd sort of way, I found that piece very freeing and encouraging at the same time. There have been times where I enjoyed writing, but I have found it frustrating when I can see the exact words I used and how I strung them together. But the person reading it took away a completely different understanding. And I scratch my head and say, did they not see those particular words or them strung together that way? Or did they miss that part entirely? Or is it just me? Am I just that shitty of a writer? (laughs) Now, given I am not the greatest of writers and I need to work on that if I'm going to pursue continuing to do do right, you know. But this was um, eye-opening and a bit of a clarification reminder that that's exactly it. There cannot be this parody between what the author writes and what the reader makes of it. The more I think about it, This disparity between what one person is trying to communicate and the other person is making of it, I think can happen even verbally. I think it's a little more uh, complex and difficult to communicate in written form than it is verbally, but I still think that the disparity exists because we're still making um, an understanding of the content of what's being communicated to us. Um, okay, (laughs) this might sound silly, but as an example, um, I watch Big Brother, and sometimes I watch the After Dark episodes, and it's interesting to watch uh, person A talking to person B, and person A says one thing, and person B interprets it completely different. It, it, It doesn't matter what words came out of person A's mouth. Person B has a previously conceived notion of what they think about person A. I think it sort of comes down to that um, idea of active listening where you're supposed to stop planning what you're going to say to the person while you're, quote, listening, but actually listening to them instead. If you're only thinking about your response or thinking about 
you know, a preconceived notion of who they are, you're not listening to what they're saying. That can shape uh, what you make of the content, whether it's written or verbal. Anyway, getting back to the point, this piece was very freeing because now I can focus on being a better communicator in whatever medium that is, verbal or written, and still understand that this disparity is going to exist. And somehow knowing that and accepting that is... um, is, uh, is, is a good thing. I don't think I'm going to give up trying to communicate. <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, I think there's more thoughts percolating in my head on this, but I rather enjoyed this piece. Once again, thank you, Patrick. Welcome back. Okay, so who is this mystery woman? She has a double PhD, one in criminology, one in psychology, and she's a former professor. She plays poker, and she helps elite players with their mindset. Her name is Dr. Trisha Cardner, and you can find her here on Anchor, as well as many other places. I'm going to share with you a segment from her podcast called Poker on the Mind, and she's talking with her co-host, Gareth James. Although poker really is an ancillary topic to this, uh, it's a lot like life, and if you know the game, you know what I mean. Regardless, in this episode called Why Common Sense is Not So Common, Dr. Trisha gets into the neurobiology, why we see things differently than each other, why we believe what we do, why we see patterns, how beliefs work, and so much more. It's really interesting. I thought this would be a great segment to follow up on the previous ones because this comes at perception and communication and all of that from a different standpoint. Now, although she gave me permission to share this with you, I'm not going to include it in the episode. So if you're listening on iTunes, etc., you'll want to tune in to Poker on the Mind, episode number 20, Why Common Sense is Not So Common. And you're looking for the uh, 18-minute mark, unless you want to enjoy the entire episode. It's great, because there's the, the entire episode is on this. When we come back, I'll talk to you about uh, how a lot of this plays into my first experience uh, participating in an escape room that happened yesterday. So I don't know about you, but I found a lot of that terribly fascinating. As a tangential uh, commentary here, what I also find interesting is that I I hadn't talked to, I'm just going to say Trisha, because Trisha is my friend, okay? I hadn't talked to Trisha in a few days, and what's funny is that sometimes we end up falling along these similar lines, thinking about similar things, and then coming back and finding that we're at similar places. But of course, she has a wealth of information I don't have, so just to have that input is is invaluable. Anyway, uh, very interesting. So I'm fascinated with this, yes, that word again, fascinated with the idea of neural pathways, the idea of building new neural pathways, which, is, which isn't easy. And she and I talk about this from time to time. And the, also the idea that if you have built up neural pathways over a long period of time, those just can't be obliterated. They can't be wiped out. Like I have a lot of of pathways built up from, uh, I hate to, to, to describe it this way, 
because it's a, a point of shame and embarrassment, but um, from from mental programming, you know, from my past, and and so there are times when I have to remind myself that that is a neural pathway that has been reinforced again and again, but it doesn't make it true. Anyway, she doesn't uh, necessarily get into all of that in this podcast, but she touches on it when she talks about beliefs and these frameworks. So it was recently a friend's birthday, and uh, we decided, or I decided, I guess, um, that it would be fun to try an escape room as something different. I wasn't sure how it would go over, but it turns out she was interested, so we did it. She loves mysteries, and we both love solving puzzles, things like that, so we chose the theme of a murder mystery. Now I have a tendency that when I watch shows like that on television, that just for the brain exercise and fun, I will pause the television sometimes and like try to figure out where the story is going or where it could go differently that would make it more interesting. Because sometimes I get irritated with a rather uh, blasé script. So I was excited. I thought this will be fun, you know, this will be a different way, a hands-on way, rather than, you know, a couch surfing version of solving mysteries. Now, although the room had a, a you know, a lower percentage of actually escaping, um, I, I was hopeful, but I was also trying to be realistic. It's just the two of us, and this room can sometimes, uh, um, well, it can be used for up for five or six people. So with fewer brains, I thought, well, also that could maybe hinder us, but I wasn't sure. Like, I had no idea what to expect. And I think I had a little bit more information about it than she did. Now, she loves mysteries m more than I do. She reads them, she listens to audiobooks, she watches the shows. I mean, that is her bread and butter for fiction. So I thought, okay, we're gonna make a great team. She's also great at solving you know, a complex issues for whether it's planning events or whatever. So I thought, okay, good. Even though it's two of us, we, we at least have some, some skills here. But then we got into the room and it was not at all what I was expecting. And it seemed to be that way for her as well. I don't know if you've ever done an escape room or not, but it's not a, you know, questions or asking, you know, who did this and who did that and, and how to like reason it out. They were puzzles that seemed mostly unrelated to the actual mystery itself. Things that had to do with colors and numbers and so on. And I found that part of it frustrating because I kept trying to tie it back to the mystery. What do these colors have to do with, you know, why Detective Stenson was murdered? If you couldn't guess by now, I'm a bit of an overthinker. And she even warned us before we went in, don't overthink it. <laughs> Yeah, okay. And I kept telling myself, listen to what she said. The woman even told us before going in that colors and numbers were significant. The difficulty for me was trying to decide when colors were relevant and where they when they were not. Especially when when the mystery seems so disconnected from these puzzles. Some of these details were so arbitrary or irrelevant or what have you. So then it's like, which pieces do I pick up and determine are relevant even though it, it, it has no bearing on Detective Stanson or the murder weapon, etc. 
So one thing I learned going through this is that you're not only dealing with your own perceptions of what this quote should be or what you think of what it might be, you're also trying to fit your brain into how somebody else thinks or how somebody else has designed this to work. And it's not a real world scenario. So that makes it all the more interesting or different to think about. I had some real difficulties, I guess, pulling out of some of those neural pathways or those beliefs that I had built up what a murder mystery should be or how it should be solved. Even when we had all of the details for the case file, it was still this Now you had to let go of all of the irrelevant pieces and pull it together as the designer saw fit, not as you reasoned it out. I had determined the solution, but I also saw some of these other pieces of information as relevant. Because in a typical mystery or, you know, uh, murder or whatever, you need all of these other pieces of information, especially if you're going to, if you're going to take it to court or prosecute, etc. You can't just throw them out or disregard them. Some of the pieces, sure, can be irrelevant, but other pieces not. And, and the designer had chosen some pieces to be relevant, which were irrelevant, and had chosen some pieces that were relevant to be irrelevant. I think I said that probably the way I meant to. Something else that was interesting as well is watching not only my difficulties of, of disengaging from some of those neural pathways and trying to build new ways of thinking and approaching this, but was watching my friend as well and her difficulty in doing it. And, and that was interesting because she doesn't normally have this kind of... of Well, she would laser focus on one thing and she knew that we had to, let's say, unlock this padlock and open the garbage can because she knew there was something in there. She knew we needed that, but she couldn't let go long enough to realize that maybe there was something else we needed to solve or maybe there was a reason we didn't have an additional piece of information to do that yet. Things that she would normally... um, hang on to as see as you know no question if the dots tell you it should be green white red and there's an arrow pointing in the order it should be done in normally there's no question there but for some reason this was this was uh, something that she would not um, or could not I, I maybe it was the frustration that's something else too, right? We talk about this in poker, is that how sometimes the emotions can override our, our brain. It was a really interesting, I guess you could say experiment, right? Seeing how we're so entrenched in how we normally think and letting go of that to, to approach how this is done in somebody else's framework. And then also making sure you can fit into your partner's framework to help them understand which was a little easier for me to do. I could help bring her along to some extent, and she could also for me to some extent. At times, we worked great together. It was really eye-opening for us both to see where we struggled and where we needed work. And now we're we're excited to go back because we want to challenge ourselves to get out of those pathways and to build new ones and to 
you know, really challenge ourselves to, to think differently and to learn differently. Because just because we think a certain way and would solve things a certain way doesn't mean somebody else will. In reflecting on real world, you know, applications, I can see, you know, doing something like this being very helpful for becoming better communicators and better understanding other people. Not just between you and the other people in, that you're going into that room with, like myself and my friend, but the exercise of having to figure out how the designer, you know, the path the designer took or what the designer wants us to figure out. Because essentially, instead of getting into the mind of the murderer, we have to get into the mind of the designer. And because this doesn't have um, like a, 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 an emotional impetus or even an intellectual impetus, this is very different. There's not a driving force there. I suppose I would have had a different perspective on this if we had done a different theme because I kept trying to see it in the context of a mystery, solving a murder, instead of these individual little puzzles. And instead of also trying to see these puzzles as purposely leading from one to the next, sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't, and they were unconnected. It was a really interesting experience, and I, I'm looking forward to going back and learning more. I mean, not, not just, you, you know, the the interpersonal relationship part of it, depending on whoever I go in there with, but just all of it about myself, you know, and trying to build new neural pathways. Something that Dr. Trisha talks about um, frequently in poker and is often misunderstood is the 10,000 hour rule. I can't remember who uh, came up with this idea and I'm sure if you asked her, she could tell you but it's about becoming an expert at something and the idea that you need to put in 10,000 10, hours to do that. It's not the, the idea about the number of hours so much is that you are building new neural pathways and it takes time to make that happen. And it's about 10,000 hours for the myelination to, to be built around those neurons. I, I'm, don't, don't quote me on that because she knows the terminology far better than I do. But it takes time for the myelination to happen. Like, I seem to be harping on the topic of neural pathways. But here's something to know that's somewhat unrelated to this. If you struggle with negative self-talk, realize that every time you say something mean to yourself, you are reinforcing that neural pathway you are making it worse. Not only that, but the more you reinforce it, reinforce it, it's kind of like you are solidifying it. You're making it more concrete, which makes it harder to fight that throughout the rest of your life. If you want to do yourself a service, build positive neural pathways, even if you don't believe what you're telling yourself at first. Think about what you would tell a friend. If a friend is having a bad day, what would you say to that friend? Now turn those words around and tell them to yourself. That's how you combat the negative neural pathways. You build the positive ones. Dr. Trisha in this segment earlier talked about beliefs and the framework that we build. This is what that's about. If you build a belief on the framework that you are 
you know, whether it's ugly or you can't do this or you can't accomplish that or whatever it is, then you're going to look for and seek out the patterns or the things that reinforce that belief. You're going to say, see, it's true. It doesn't make it true. She also talked about confirmation bias. Don't confirm to yourself those negative biases. Okay, I'm having a brain fart. I think I said that word right. Anyway, this has sort of been all over, but I guess the real takeaway is is that we make, you know, meaning out of what we see and what we choose to believe. And everyone else is doing the exact same thing. It sort of creates this game of imperfect communication. If we understand that, then maybe it will give us a little bit more empathy for each other, greater understanding, and possibly a leg up towards progress. If you have any thoughts on my ramblings that sort of wandered everywhere today, give me a call. I'd love to hear. Hey, Seeking Plum. It's Alan with Sentient Future. Wow, did you ever give your listeners a lot to think about? So if I were to combine a couple of the ideas that you, Alidia McDaniel, and uh, The Great Everything had, namely that we can't truly know what the other person means, that sometimes we have a tendency to form our thoughts before we're finished listening to what the other person is saying, and that our beliefs are reinforced neurological pathways that form our biases, the conclusion I reach is that it's nigh impossible to communicate effectively with someone unless we are trying extremely hard. The difference between what you mean and what I understand seems massive by default. The fact that we understand ourselves ever as a species blows my mind. Actually, hold on, that just triggered something for me related to one of your earlier segments about Socrates' view that we recall knowledge rather than learn it. I'll send you another call in. So here's an idea. What if self-awareness actually helps us understand other people? Person to person, we are all actually extremely similar in terms of our biology and fundamental needs. You know that I'm a huge supporter of focusing on our similarities rather than differences. I find it more productive. We can either try to understand what other people mean by translating what we hear uh, and accounting for biases that we think uh, each person has, or we can put that really noisy information aside for a second and try to be more empathetic. Seriously, at a fundamental level, what would you need in their situation? In believing that people are fundamentally good, should we perhaps ignore what other people say because it's unlikely we will understand what they mean, and instead form meaning based on what our fundamental needs would be if we were in their situation, and in so doing possibly use our knowledge of ourself and our own morality to better understand what was meant? You know, I'm also a supporter of measuring only what's relevant. In a way, listening to others is a form of measurement or sensing. I think a lot of people would argue that if you're going to employ empathy and try to put yourself in someone's situation, that you would do that in addition to listening to what they are saying. But what if the two contradict one another? Which one takes priority? I'd argue that empathy should come first. That we approach understanding someone from this assumption of goodness and similarity of fundamental needs. If through that empathy alone we don't have enough information, having now at least tried to make translation unnecessary perhaps, only then do we listen to what they've said, interpreting it through this lens of assumed goodness and similarity, the benefit ultimately being that we don't see conflicts with the other person that aren't really there, thus approaching the conversation peacefully, 
and with a desire to reach agreement. Ignoring what people are saying, at least at first, seems like a strange recommendation. But think about it, we are far too quick to listen to what other people are saying, because it's the easiest information to interpret, not necessarily because it's the most accurate. Think about this in the scenario of measuring something quantitatively at work. How much weight would you place in a stream of data that you knew was inaccurate? So here's where Socrates comes in. What if, like the laws of physics that we can discover without having to be taught them, our needs are also universal? Can we generally know others, at a fundamental level at least, simply by discovering ourselves? And as communicators, can we better convey our own message by focusing less on describing our thoughts and instead focusing on showing other people our situation, giving their empathy the best chance it has at understanding us directly, bypassing miscommunication? What do you think? What do I think? Ellen, you gave us a lot to think about. I'll warn you, I'm operating on very little sleep, and it's about almost 2.30 in the morning, so I don't know how coherent I'm going to be. <laughs> I've come to a very similar place, that it's pretty much impossible to communicate with somebody else unless you're really trying to do so. From the unique ways that we think and our neural pathways being different, our imperfect language and the different ways that we use it, I mean, I might mean one thing when I use a word and you might mean something else. The way we make meaning of things, etc. Yeah, it gets pretty complex. I am with you and I agree wholeheartedly that the more we know ourselves and the more self-aware we are, the more we understand others. That at least has been my personal experience. Even learning the different ways that we all think and operate helps me be able to communicate better with others as well. I find new methods, new tools to use, and depending on what, uh, how the other person communicates or who they are depends on whether I will use that tool or not. The idea of setting aside the noise of what is said and offering what is needed via empathy, I'm a little hesitant on this idea. I can see it being very effective in certain scenarios and it being quite beautiful actually. But there are other scenarios that I, I'm not so sure about. For instance, if I'm having a conversation with someone about a political issue, I can see this applying perfectly, or at least ideally, setting aside what they might be saying and paying attention more to what they might need. But there are times when I'm having a conversation with a friend or someone I have just met and I can empathetically tell that their words don't match and although I know they need something differently than what they're telling me, I also know that they're not ready to receive it. And at that point then I have to be respectful enough to step back and 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 give them essentially what they need and that is not to give it to them whatever it is in that moment sometimes people just need time before they're ready so I kind of like the idea of empathy taking priority over words but I think that sometimes it's a, a almost um, an equation of the two together. 
where we understand that the person needs something, but they're telling us differently. And sometimes we have to use them together. So I see that you need this, but you're not ready. And you're telling me you're not ready, and I'm going to respect that. I love your focus on similarities as common ground because it automatically takes the wind out of any potential tension, or largely does, at least from our perspective. And when we come into that scenario, um, this word is not quite right, but deflated or less um, aggressive or assertive, I guess you could say. I don't even know if that's quite right. Not on guard, I guess you could say but ready to listen and receive rather than um, to come at them. That changes the entire tone of the interaction. It may not be all rainbows and butterflies, but it'll be less um, negative than it could have been if we came in with a different perspective. If both parties came in focusing on our similarities, then real progress can be made. And I guess I'm speaking from the perspective of these two individuals having a conversation that's more of um, a, a debate or a conflict of some kind. Because friends tend to see the similarities. The last scenario where I'm a little hesitant about empathy taking priority over words is when somebody has been destructive towards you. In that case, you almost have to dial your empathy back a little bit and pay more attention to um, actions and words because you almost have to pay attention to just that. Imperfect though that data may be. I feel like I've barely skimmed the surface on some of the things you touched on, but I am, uh, I think I'm fading here. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave this for now and I'm going to bid you good night and uh, maybe revisit this uh, whenever I wake. <laughs> Thanks, Alan, for your thoughtful reflections and your calls.